Welcome back for yet another episode of Behind the Lens. And yes, we are live coming to you from the Adrenaline Radio Studios in Whittier. We are adhering to social distancing in the during this coronavirus crisis time. I am in my own secluded booth. Pam is in her own secluded booth with soundproof glass in between us. Um, and it's just us here, and we think uh, Big Boss Nick is somewhere around here. But we're hoping all of you are safe out there, adhering to social distancing, you know, if at all possible. And looking at some of the news footage of going through airports and things, I realize it's tough. But... You know, for those of you that are listening, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers and TV and filmmakers. And uh, even though some movie theaters are closed uh, in the city of Los Angeles, in the city of New York, uh, potentially other cities may follow. Uh, certain governors have made recommendations to close theaters. But I have to commend the movie theater chains out there. Arclight, Regal, AMC. They have done their utmost setting up socially social distancing in a socially responsible manner uh, and shutting down every other row um, so that people do maintain at least that six-foot Dance space, shall we say. Let's give a Johnny Castle Dirty Dancing reference there. This is my dance space. This is your dance space. And when you put those arm lengths together, you're looking at about six feet. Um, so hopefully the theaters will not be forced to shut down completely because you need something to do. You will go stir crazy over the next couple weeks. But we're here for you. All of our shows are archived and available on BehindTheLensOnline.net, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and so many more as well. All of them, going back to the very first episode over six years ago. Um, you can hear them all with some great guests. We've got great guests today for you. Uh, Sherry Sussman is back with us. Uh, she's with a new film, new short film. It is currently on the festival circuit. Was going to be at the Beverly Hills Film Festival on uh, in April, on, on April 1. However, Beverly Hills Film Festival has been continued. Uh, but there's no reason not to talk about a film to put on your radar for when things are back up and running in a normal fashion. Joining Sherry is her producing partner and director of Nowhere to Go, Janice Pacino. So they'll be joining us shortly. But we're talking about, we, there's always movies, and you can always see them. Your streaming services are invaluable right now. Uh, and if you don't have Disney+, Plus, buy some Disney+. Plus. Subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Um, it was really great of Disney to go and put Frozen 2 on the Disney Plus platform three months early. Um, you know, all the Star Wars films are available on Disney+. Plus. And speaking of Star Wars, we brought a little, we figured, figured we need a little bit of the force today. So if you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, yes, we have BB-8 is joining us, our Star Wars lightsaber, which I could demonstrate the noises, but you'd probably all laugh hysterically at me to hear them. Uh, so, you know, the force is with all of us uh, on a global level. So, and all we can do is just keep on going. And movies are an escape. Uh, they take us to places, to galaxies far, far away. They let us escape the realities. Or, for those of you like myself that love films like 1995's Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo, that didn't do well when it came out, but now, I've noticed on social media, people were just flocking to see that movie this weekend. Uh, on various digital platforms, uh, and if they had it tucked away in VHS or, D or DVD. Um, th films like that, sometimes it's nice to see something on film that makes your situation seem not as bad as what you're watching. Uh, there's a brand new film that is out, that is on demand right now. And uh, if your theater is open and showing small indie films, it, may, it is probably there. 
Uh, but it's a film called Only. It's about a pandemic that comes uh, after a comet stri- passes over the earth and dust falls, wipes out all the women. Okay, we have an issue with that, but we won't, we won't dwell on that. But there are a lot of films, a lot of dystopian films that are out there that deal with con- such as Contagion, such as 28 Days, 28 Days Later. Um, they will make your situation now feel a lot better. Trust me. Um, There is somebody that will make your situation always feel better, and that is the wonderful Josh O'Connor. Josh is currently in two films that, well, one opened Friday and one has been out since February. Um, If your theaters are open, you can still see them. Emma, he plays Mr. Elton one of Jane Austen's most delicious characters, and he gives Mr. Elton a spin that you would never have imagined. He is, uh, and he plays in there. Bill Nye, he is one of his co-stars. He also plays with Annette Bening and Bill Nye in the brand new Hope Gap, um, which is written and directed by William Nicholson. It is a beautiful film. Um, and it is the story of parent his parents who are now suddenly divorcing and it's that typical back and forth even adult kids get thrown into the middle of divorce and Josh plays the son Jamie uh it's a wonderful performance for him and it really gets to showcase his ability to switch emotions as he has to deal with his father played by Bill Nighy in one manner and deal with his very needy and demanding mother and melodramatic mother, on the other hand. Uh, It's a great performance. But you can also see him anytime if you watch The Crown, where he picked up the role of Prince Charles in season three. That started airing in December. But right now, Josh is out there in three high-profile subjects. I've been watching him for a number of years, going all the way back to... Florence Foster Jenkins, he had a small part in there, but there's something about Josh that always captures your attention. I had a chance, uh, when was it, last week? <laughs> it seems so far away. Uh, <laughs> I had a chance last week to talk to Josh uh, about all three roles. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Josh O'Connor. Hi, Josh. Hi, how are you? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk to you this morning. You are one Thanks. one busy boy. <laughs> I am, Debbie. I am. I'm, we've got... It's lovely. I'm so glad I get to speak to you. Um, I'm just glad that you're working so much. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. I don't know that my uh, friends are. I need to take... <laughs> I might take out some time off soon. Well... I mean, you're dazzling, you know, Prince Charles in The Crown, um, Mr. Elton in Emma. I am so in love with this fi- with that film and your performance. And then I watch you in a totally, with a totally different tone and a totally different take in Hope Gap as Jamie. You are, you have such a command of an emotional range it is exciting. It's exciting to watch you. Oh, thanks so much. That really means a lot, Toby. Thank you. Because you look at these roles, and they are so. The only common thread you have here is you got to work with Bill in Emma and in Hope Gap, um, <laughs> and that's not a bad commonality to have. But I'm cu- that's pretty good. I'm curious what is it that speaks to you about these scripts when you get them? Um, Obviously, The Crown, Prince Charles, you have to say yes to that. But then you get something like Emma, which has been done ten times at at least in television and film. Uh, And then Hope Gap, which really showcases your dramatic talent. Mm, I think... um Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, Emma was a was a funny one because I, I was so aware of the the novel, and um, and Mr. Elton is such an iconic role. Mm-hmm. 
in the UK in particular, I don't know if it translates in the US, but for, for us, it's kind of, he's sort of the great sleaze bag of Jane Austen. So, <laughs> um, I thought, I always, I always, I'd seen lots of versions of them and I, I always had a kind of feeling that I wanted to play, um, I guess I wanted, I always had an idea of how I wanted to play Elton in perhaps a, a less traditional way and that I wanted him to be kind of, um, to, for him to think that he's terrific and brilliant and um, God's gift. And so that was always, that was always a no-brainer for me. Although when I met Walton DeWild, I kind of, all those versions that have been made before of Emma suddenly felt like they'd never been made before because she has, in my opinion, totally transformed um, that book, which is such a treat. So I, that was Emma. And then uh, with Hope Gap, it was kind of, it came an interesting time, Hope Gap, because I'd, I'd done a film uh, called God's Own Country, which had made, um, had kind of launched, I guess launched my career onto a different level. And, then, and we just won lots of awards. And, um, and at that point, there were kind of lots of scripts being sent my way, including The Crown, and I said yes to The Crown, and uh, we were just... I shot Hope Gap a couple of months before I started shooting The Crown, and I was in a kind of slightly uh, terrified place of going into a big show. I'd never done anything so commercial. Um, and Hope Gap was just one of those jobs that was so good for my soul, because... I got to work, as you say, with Bill Nye, who is and remains a really close friend of mine. Um, and then Annette Benning, who is so iconic. And um, and I think the combination of those two actors and getting to, to speak the words of the writer, William Nicholson, was, was so exciting because it it's unlike most films. I think it's so lyrical as opposed to visual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was that's a rare thing to get to do so yeah it was the kind of, i think it was the script ultimately that kind of really got me excited for this one hope gap it's contemporary um whereas you've got these other all these other period pieces even going back to uh florence foster jenkins and things like that um but it's contemporary it's present day and this is nicholson wrote a lot of this based on his own experiences did that, and then he's directing it on top of having written it. Does that give you any kind of trepidation or a, a higher level of responsibility, sense of responsibility that you really want to embrace the emotional beats of this character? Yeah, uh, yeah, I did. Feel, I mean, look, I did feel that. And uh, when I first met William Nicholson, I sat down with him and said, I loved his script and I was keen to do it but I felt a little bit like I didn't I, I essentially I didn't want to just play a, 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 I, I, I always think it's dangerous when you do it when someone's written something and is directing something personal because it will never ever be what their memory tells them it was mm-hmm. um, and so I was quite keen to make that clear to him that I want to create a character and I don't want to create uh, a vision of what you might have looked like when you were younger or how you might have spoken. And he was totally, that was his, he was completely on board with that. Um, you know, it's not too dissimilar to what, how I approached Charles in so far as I made the same kind of statements of basically saying, you know, I don't want to play Prince Charles like we've seen Prince Charles in the news or in traditionally, I want to play him as a character and create it myself. And, and yeah, and he was really um, responsive and helpful and understood that and, so, and supportive of that decision. So it was, it was great. I didn't, never felt too much pressure, really. Mm-hmm. What, did, what it, did you draw on? Because Jamie is a ping pong ball in Hope Gap. Um, he's getting bounced, and so many people in the world that are in families of divorce, it falls on the on the kids to be used as as ping pong balls, as go betweens between the parents, and then one wanting, you know, no, you do this, you make the other one do this, and we see that. Uh, and I have to tell you, as Jamie, my heart bled 
for him, watching what you brought to him emotionally, uh, especially in dealing with his mother, Grace. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious what you tap into to find that emotional cornerstone for him in this, because it's you're playing two different emotions. You've got the emotion when you're with Bill, the emotion when you're with Annette, and we can see on your face the total the difference in the relationships that JB has with each parent and how he's being torn apart. So I'm I'm just curious where you draw on to pull that off so beautifully. Well, thank you. Um yeah, I think um I mean I don't but basically I don't know the I don't know the answer necessarily. I think um I don't know if I drew on um yeah, I mean certainly not from personal experience. So look uh my parents are happily very much still together and I have I have no real trauma from my <laughs> childhood. I've been very fortunate in that sense. Um I think I think you just draw from empathy and a kind of I guess attempting to understand or you know what people's experience might be like and I think the biggest thing for me was at the heart of this was this kind of this idea that perhaps Jamie has gone away and moved away from home and that home represents tension to him um and by doing that I think it kind of it meant that everything sort of fell in place after that so if if as soon as i imagined my home being somewhere that's tense it meant that when he gets on a train his shoulders become arched and and he closes off and that by the time his his father sits him down which is quite early on in the film just says i'm leaving mm -hmm. in a weird way there's a kind of sense of relief for jamie um but again it's not necessarily from stuff from lived experience by myself, it's more out of, um, I guess, out of an imaginative, you know, trying to imagine what that might feel like. Um, it's, it's the only way I can really describe it. And um, and more often than not, it's sort of, you know, it's just bringing everything back to hum human interaction and how humans interact and how humans experience pain or loss. And this is essentially just... Uh, a young man experiencing loss of a relationship, loss of parents, because they will never be the same again. That home will never be the same again. So, mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and I, I, I hope that answers your question. And I found it really interesting that with the production design in the family home, Jamie's bedroom, the walls are red, almost as if telling us, stop, do not enter, leave me alone. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah and also we... We wanted that bedroom to be like he's never left. Mm -hmm. his, he's still got his kids' toys around. It's like, you know, he's grown up. He's grown out of the house. But in a weird way, the mother, Grace, has, has left it as a sort of strange shrine to older times, to when they were a happy family. Mm -hmm. um, and so things like that, I think, is a kind of feeling of sort of kind of archaic feeling to the house um uh yeah yeah that's but i i agree i think the red is absolutely signifies the kind of stop don't enter mm -hmm. and of course i have to say how enchanting as jamie is sitting at his at his laptop and touches the nose of his teddy bear that was <laughs> that was so precious josh oh, so God. precious <laughs> to see that yeah i think it's i think those are kind of um that was actually something that I think was a, an actually a very personal thing for Bill, for William um, Nicholson, and, and but I totally understand that feeling of a kind of yeah, I guess a kind of um, reaching out for for the innocence of being a child. I guess mm -hmm. um, that's what that felt like. I suppose. Mm -hmm. yeah. What was the, is there a big difference in the production process for you? when you jump from a contemporary film like Hope Gap uh, into a period piece like Emma or The Crown, does anything change for you from the production standpoint other than your costume um, and locations? Or is there are the rigors still the same? 
Um, no, it's very, I think it is very different because I think um, it requires a sort of, in some ways, uh, I find period work in some ways more accessible because you're, by entering in that world, by entering into a set that is, um, I don't know, in Jane Austen, England, or um, Buckingham Palace in The Crown, um, you are immediately transformed. And it sort of helps with that process. What's interesting about a film like Hope Gap is having to ex- exist in a world that feels current, mm-hmm. um, but as a different character other than yourself. That's, in some ways, that's more challenging. But, um, yeah, I guess that's the key difference. And, of course, you're in a beautiful location for this film, too. Yeah, it's a stunning location. And not too far from where we shot Emma, either. <laughs> Um, so I spent an awful long time over the last couple of years in that area, and it's, um, it is a real treat. It's a beautiful part of the world. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. So one yeah, one yeah. last question before I let you go, Josh. I'm curious, yeah. what did you learn about yourself um, in the making of Hope Gap or even contrasting it with Emma or The Crown um, or your other yeah. television experience? What did you learn that you can now take forward into your future performances? Um, I guess I think the biggest thing was um, was a fear. I think what I kind of learned from Hope Gap actually is not necessarily about um, the film itself. The Hope Gap was an incredibly important film for me because um, it's been one of the, the most wonderful experiences of making a film I've ever had. Um, We all got together, we made it in a summer over a short period of time, for not an awful lot of money, and it was just heaven. And we all supported each other. It was a collaboration that felt so kind and caring, and everyone was there to support each other. I think the biggest thing that I learned was uh, a kind of, I guess, that we that we can make movies and we can make uh, creative work and there doesn't have to be tension, there doesn't have to be stress. Um, although those things aren't always a bad thing, I think at the heart of it, having kindness and supporting each other as collaborators is a, a really important thing. And to echo Josh, it doesn't just apply to films. I think right now in the world... Uh, having heart, having kindness, and supporting each other is more important than other than ever. Again, Josh O'Connor, you can watch The Crown streaming on Netflix at any time. Uh, Hope Gap, Emma, hopefully you can still find them in your theaters for the theaters that are open, and if not, as soon as they open. I'm hoping distributors will actually bring these, make very quick online deals and digital deals to get these films out there for all of you. Uh, during these quarantine times, you got to have something to do if you can't go anywhere. Well, right now, you bringing them live, Pam? All right. They have been very, very, very patient while we got through Josh's interview. I'm thrilled to welcome back Sherry Sussman and her her latest partner in crime, Julie Pacino. Hello. (laughs) Hello, guys. How are you? Good, good. How are you? Uh, social distancing. I was going to say, you're calling in on two different lines. You're in two yeah, different locations. We're all, so, we're all being socially responsible and distancing ourselves right now. Um, so I'm so thrilled to have you guys on. Uh, another, another short film, Sherry. My God. <laughs> yep. You're my- this was a good one, yeah. Your mind just and every single everything you do is so different. You're, oh yeah, thank you. Th- this one I had for quite a while, and um, I was lucky enough to I met Julie years ago, and we always kind of talked about maybe doing something together. And I sent this one out to her, and she's a really talented group of people in New York. She's been working with the past few years, shooting shorts and. Um, and she said she'd love to do it and came out to L.A., and that, that's kind of how we did it. Well, and Pretty simple. And the two of you, I guess, like working together so much that you went and did a second film already, Harmony and Gold. Yep, yep, we did. Back to back, it was like 
six months of of work so ultimately it wound up feeling like a feature which was really cool but yeah we we shot nowhere to go i guess we started prepping nowhere to go around this time last year and then um shot it in may and then went right into pre-production on harmony and gold Mm -hmm. over the summer which we shot uh in september so it was a it was a good six month stretch there where we got a lot of stuff done you know, yeah, I actually think we were in post-production and nowhere to go and prepping for Harmony and Gold at the same time. God. <laughs> <laughs> Only you would do something like that, Sherry. Uh, actually, Julie, <laughs> Julie talked me into this one, Deb. Oh. <laughs> this is all Julie's inspiration. To be honest, I didn't even oh. think I was going to do another short. I was like, we, you know, we did the one night in Hollywood you were... Mm-hmm. So nice to interview us for years ago, and I said, "Ah, oh, I think that might be my last short." I know then, you uh, wanted to go into features and just stick with features. Well, yeah, that's the plan. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but it's it... a, sort of always depends on how much money is in the bank and in the financing, of course. And we did one night in Hollywood in hopes of raising the money for the feature, and we're still working on that. And and Julie has a great new company, Tiny Apples, that um, she's she's wanting to come on board and co-produce that too. So, you know, we're we're still hustling for that. But well, yeah, Ian, um, Ian in the meantime, shorts are. You know, it's it work is work, and, and I've always loved this piece. So I, I was really thrilled that Julie and her team wanted to come out to L.A., so we kind of collaborated with all the people we knew, and um, I'm super happy that we did it. I, I'm really proud of it. So tell me about Nowhere to Go. It's a very simple premise. Two suicided people, one young girl who's 17, a male who's appears to be in his 20s, um, and they randomly meet. And the question becomes, do they, don't they, you know, what happens? Where did this idea come from? Well, um, basically, I I think I, I, I wrote it like 15 years ago, and it was more of a state of mind, like, um, in general, you, you don't want to be where you're at, but you don't want to, you know, not necessarily kill yourself. And um, it was just a piece I kind of archived, and people have always wanted to do it. And um, when I tossed it to Julie, I actually, you know, the thought of being in that place, and it was Julie that picked up on its purgatory, you know, l- literally, mm-hmm. and she turned the film into being these two people literally are in purgatory and we shot at the Paramount Ranch, which I had always wanted to shoot out there and shot there years ago. It was right after the fires, so I sent her pictures, and mm-hmm. Julie just, you know, took it to another level. And um, originally it was a bit of a Harold and Maude, and it just turned into, I think, just a kind of beautiful piece of, you know, purgatory in, in any kind of area of your life. You know, you're mm-hmm. just stuck. And um that was that was all Julie, you know, picked it up in this this um this location was like purgatory. It was half burnt, sadly enough. But uh as filmmakers, you know, we're we're kinda creepy and thought, Wow, this is amazing for the film <laughs> and we we you know, Julie took it from there. And then I'll let her tell you how she came up with that too well, from be- the piece. Because your visuals, Julie, are just amazing. I mean, when we get to that twelve minute mark and the whole world is turned there. It's upside down and you fill it with color. I mean, that pinkish orange, that richness of the sky turned upside down is stunning. It just, yeah, it it turns Aaron. My heart is amazing. Um, and yeah, I think when Sherry, when I, when I read the script, which was just so, like you said, simple and, and just, you know, any, I think any time there's a, you're dealing with suicide, it's it's it, it's a fine line, and and um and I thought Sherry just did such a great job of not over dramatizing, uh, over dramatizing it. And so when I read the script, yeah, I think you know I've never really struggled with suicide myself, but um I was trying to find sort of a hook in and and, and uh, find something that I could express through it and um. And she talked to Sherry a lot, and we just came up with this sort of this sort of angle that that it's a, it's more, it's a state of mind. So there, which we've all been in in this sort of purgatory like 
space where, where there's no hope. And, um, and so I really felt like there was something to express with that, like being in that sort of transitional period where every day seems like, you know, it, it all seems like one long day. And so uh, with the, with the location, yeah, it's, it's the, I thought it was the perfect kind of symbol for, for mm-hmm. that because there was just these, this beautiful, bright grass and, and flowers and colors, but then the trees were just burned to a black char. And, mm-hmm. and so I think it just it symbolized purgatory in such a perfect way that it kind of just revealed itself, that, that, that whole angle. And then, you know, we, we started talking, me and Aaron, our, our DP, started talking about what the, what the rules were of this purgatory space. And mm-hmm. we came up with this idea that, like, the day uh, the the day starts and it's it's it looks very normal um and then as the day progresses the colors sort of get brighter and brighter and brighter and as the as the main character is kind of becoming more and more self-aware that she's in this altered state um the colors reflect that and then so yeah it like crescendos at the end to where there's just full bright the sky is red and everything is upside down and you know she's she's fully aware and then the whole film kind of resets and and there's this loop. Um, and then, you know, I wanted to just, I think all of us involved in the making of it, Sherry, like we wanted to just make sure that we left this character with a sense of hope. So it's not necessarily that she's going to be fine for the rest of her life, but at least for today, she's a little bit more aware and pointed in the right direction than she was the day before. So she is stuck in a loop, but, but she's now starting to become aware that she's in a loop, which is always the first step to getting out of, of that thought pattern. Well, I think it's so beautiful the way you shot it and, and you have her, we've got the back of her head and then she turns to the right and just this faint smile comes on her face and then you cut to black and you, you leave us with so much hope. The film is so hopeful um, but very similar, like the, it's always darkest before the dawn and yeah. really well done. And I love how you progress as you, as things intensify and it, both of them, it's like, all right, let's just do this. Let's, let's get out of our pain. And the camera comes in closer and the, and the ECUs that you have on the eyes, so powerful. It's well, almost as yeah. if you're trying to draw us into their into their injured, their broken souls. Um, very metaphoric. Really works yeah, well. Yeah, I think the whole piece is definitely a metaphor and a poem. But but in the same breath, like it was also important for us to make sure that we had defined rules. Like the, like we made a distinct decision as the filmmakers as to like what exactly is really happening with these two characters and where exactly they are. But I think the idea is to kind of leave it open for interpretation Mm -hmm. and not necessarily cram those rules down anyone else's throats because we just, it's it's about a, it's about a feeling. Mm -hmm. The movie is about a feeling. And so um, if that's coming across, then that's good. Well, and one of the big elements in this film is your sound design. Wow. Between the music and silence. I mean, there's one moment in the film where there is nothing. There's no ambient (laughs) sound. You can't even hear that caterpillar crawling on the dirt. Um, It's, uh, yeah, that is just so striking. But, and then the music. That was all Julie. Yeah, Julie had the sound. She had always talked about the sound in this where, where sounds were, altered and even i love the you know when she goes by the grass and there's like glass sounds and julie talked about that from the very beginning and and she had this really long shot where where it does become silent and that that was all julie's design and eric julie who did our sound mix too who actually worked on a feature i had macarthur park 20 years ago that mm-hmm. just was kind of random <laughs> that we got him through a friend and he happened to do it but Julie and he worked, and Julie always had that sound design in her head. I remember her talking about it, like, as part of our pre-production. And, um, yeah, that blew me away, too. And I think um, it was always that idea of that everything's a little off 
and um and and the silence part to me too. Deb, I'm glad you said because I was blown away because that's what it's like in that state. It's like the silence is deafening, mm-hmm. and um, just for that moment of time that I thought Julie really just captured the feeling. I had so many people that wanted to do this script um, over the years, and it just never happened. But all my friends always wanted to. And then when when Julie took it, I I thought you know sometimes. As a writer, you just archive something that mm-hmm. you go, ah, eventually. I think us writers, we all have pieces that were like, someday I might do that. And um, and then I finally did it. So to me, it, it's, it was just amazing. And, you know, I'm super grateful that, you know, she, she took it and we actually did it. And and the whole idea, too, about the the feeling of it is that it was always meant to be just a simple human connection mm-hmm. can alter your, your life. You know, whether it's meeting somebody in Starbucks, it it really sometimes is something that simple and, you know, changes your, your attitude, your outlook on life, no matter where you're at. You know, it's, it was always just about a simple human connection of somebody going like, oh, my God, I feel the same way. And, and um, so that really is the essence of, pe- of the piece that, that I really always thought that Julie and, and Aaron, her partner, who um, helped produce this, he was a producer on it and DP'd and, um, the three of us, I think, really just clicked in. And so, yeah, I was, I was really grateful that, that they did it. Well, you've got that nine seconds of deafening silence in there. And that... Is it nine seconds? Yes, it's from 934 to <laughs> 943. <laughs> wow. Sherry knows I pay very close attention. <laughs> I did say wow. Deb's a great but She's very meticulous, and, which is beautiful. No, and then at the 12-minute mark, the the music that comes in, and then you know, and just absolutely gorgeous. And the way that you have the mix is done, bringing us into the final the music as she's becoming so fully aware. And then we go into the end titles, which is just a reverse negative and it's gorgeous. Yeah. That's all, that's all our partner, uh, Bob McCready oh. in Texas. He does like the titles for all of our stuff and our graphics. And he's a, uh, just a, a creative genius. Like I don't, he, I didn't give him any direction or anything. Like he just watched the film and, that's what he came to us with and it's kind of it's perfect because the titles have the, that same thing that the film has mm-hmm. it's, they're simple but there's also just sort of something a little off about them yeah and, but yeah that's all that's all bob he's he's the best but the i mean you're actually your end titles the song the end title song that you have the visuals take out the titles themselves and just have the visual of the reverse negative and the trees, um, the yeah. white against the black, that could be its own standalone music video. It's, it <laughs> yeah, is no, totally. stunning. Yeah. Exactly. There. Now, yeah, we're, it's amazing. And I, I send that out to, to veterans in the business and they're blown away. Oh, they're yeah. Like, you know, the best end credits I've ever seen. And yeah, we, it's amazing. Bob is super talented. He did, and some of his stills are used in the film, and he did our trailer and our poster, and yeah, he, he was, he's a gem for sure. And then the the song is funny, Deb, because Julie went through all the music Julie had picked like mm-hmm. as she was shooting, and you know, I was running around trying to get licensing, and the funniest thing is uh, she had a different song, and then all of a sudden she grabbed this song like that was so obscure, mm-hmm. and it Oh, I forgot the name, Vishti Bunyan, or there's this, like, artist from the 60s, and it, it was amazing, like we called it, I don't even think the record label knew that the, who she was, it was, it was one of the most obscure but perfect songs I, I've ever heard, and yeah, Julie does all the music, I mean, oh my she worked God. with uh, Dave Egger, did some uh, scoring, but, uh, well, Julie, you can talk about the music because she Julie's so distinctive on music. Mm-hmm. All her films is one thing I've always loved about her. Deb, when you see all her other films, she just uh, she did a short that just always captured me ten years ago when I met her. It's a minute short with this you know incredible Johnny Cash song, and it's mm-hmm. just so perfect for the minute short and and Julie's sensibility on music. It's always been a I, I mean it's just really unique and original and just kind of supports a film, you know, as good as any director I've ever mm-hmm. seen. You know, I'm curious, Julie, with regards to the music, the the story and the visuals, were you thinking of the music that you wanted as you were shooting 
as, as you were storyboarding or shot listing? Or did you get all your footage and then start coming up with the tone you wanted musically? Um, yeah, on this one, I had all the music in mind before we shot. And because um, I, you know, I love music. And so when when shot listing or visualizing it, I'll just put on, you know, I'll just go down a rabbit hole and try to find songs and visualize the, whatever sequence we're working on. Uh, so, yeah, on this one, most of the music was was picked out beforehand um it helps me visualize you know i think so music helps me visualize how the how the shots should play out mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean i'm a big quentin tarantino fan and uh he I, I i i believe does sort of the same thing he he the music is first and then he writes the scene around that so um yeah no, it's it's out. It's just absolutely fabulous. But now I'm curious because you're so specific about the music. Had you, after reading the script, visualized anything you wanted to do that you then changed because of the music that you got? Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah, totally, oh, totally. Because I think even the pill. when we first. When I first read the draft, like Sherry, remember we at one point there was like this hip hop like rap song I wanted to use <laughs> yeah. at the very end, but then, but then yeah, like as the as the as I'm big on rehearsing too, and so like as we rehearsed and things started to take shape, then then yeah, like the tone becomes more apparent. Mm -hmm. So de definitely, definitely it evolved. I, that's the beautiful thing about rehearsing is that it just that's where really the the feeling was born was through these rehearsals and Sherry was such a great collaborator as a writer because she was like wide open to us, you know, taking her work and just seeing what was flowing and what wasn't. And she was doing rewrites constantly. And, you know, it was, so it was definitely, which is so great, you know, because it's just that, it, that to be open to that, it's just, it's important. It's film is a is a it's a constantly changing thing so you write the script and it's your foundation and your it's your where you start but it it grows and it changes and it shifts and there are things that you thought were going to be uh amazing and on the nose like don't work when you hear it out loud and and so it was a very fluid process all the way through the edit and i think that's so super important is just to be constantly open to it changing and becoming mm -hmm. what it really wants to be because otherwise then you're just forcing it uh be, you're forcing it you know you're not letting it it's a, it's a you plant a seed it's a flower you, mm -hmm. you know the script is the first seed and then it just yeah. it grows and becomes what it wants to be and i think uh, as filmmakers it's, we're just we're just sort of surfing that wave and trying to just stay as true to the feelings uh as possible and just follow that and if you just if you let that be what's leading you then then usually you know the the end result is is maybe some people won't won't like it or, or but but like it's it's it is what it is it's authentic and so that's that's like always been you know something that's been important to me because mm -hmm. usually i direct things that i've written but but with collaborating with Sherry, you know, it was really cool how open she was to like letting that be the process. And I think the film really benefited from that. You know, I'm curious, Sherry, for you, there is very minimal dialogue here. Um, with a short film, you expect minimal dialogue, but no, there's really minimal, minimal dialogue here. Um, did you, when you wrote, were you writing in the emotional beats into the script? an idea of what the visual was or what you thought it would be in order to have something cohesive here? No, actually the, that was, that was all part of the collaboration with Aaron and Julie. Mm. It originally was a 22 page script. It was like a Harold no. Maud and it was really verbose and it was written as, you know, uh, for 20 year olds, which is, you know, also the idea of, you know, when you trust the people you're working with, you may argue and, you know, yell at each other, but ultimately, you know, when you come to like minds, I, I always say with three people, you know, if one person doesn't like it or somebody you're working with, even two people, there's a better idea. And 
and um, you know, it was the first time the three of us had ever worked together, and it was a piece that meant a lot to me. I had it for a long time, and and um, they, I just kind of went with it. Julie had this young actor, so our actors, Alexis Rosinski, Julie had done a table read with on a project she was working on, and she was 16, and she said, could you make it as a 16-year-old? And I was like, well, you know, let me give it a shot, because <laughs> as old as I am, I still oh, think sh- like I'm 16 or 17. <laughs> and uh, and Kyle Kaminsky, Kyle was in One Night in Hollywood, Debbie. And yes, I, I know. I, he played the guy we killed, so mm. we keep trying to kill Kyle, and he, he Why came not? on board. So I did a rewrite <laughs> for them, and Julie said, can you make it around 10 or 12 pages? So I did a rewrite, and then through that, um, we just kept editing it, and it was almost like I'd cut a line, and Aaron and Julie were like, what about this line, what about that line? And um, and it actually became an eight-page script, which I, I, I'm all for because I'm always like, you know, really a, you know, a, a script is, they always say, it's $100,000 per word, so... Mm-hmm. It, it just became a different style, and um, and I always just said to Julie, just let it breathe, which she did. And I trusted Julie and Aaron totally with visuals. One of my favorite things about Julie is her style, and we're, we're kind of opposite. I'm sort of a Barry Levinson literal, and mm-hmm. she's more of a Tim Burton, David Lynch, Quentin Tarantino rolled up in one mm-hmm. into a Julie Pacino. And um, so that was one of the exciting parts of working with her because we are so opposite. Um very reality-based um, in my style. So I thought it, it would just be really cool to do something with her because she has that really kind of unique visual that I don't organically have or naturally. It's not my style, mm-hmm. but I love it. So, so yeah. Um, yeah, and then eventually it just became down to, you know, the the idea of the location and the way they were shooting was so beautiful. And um, I, did, I didn't mind cutting, you know, words here and there, maybe mm-hmm. a couple I kind of questioned, but then I went with it, and I think at the end, I was like, cut this, cut that, and <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's something new for you. <laughs> that's, that's... I'm, I'm fine with doing it. I think, um, <laughs> you know, when, when I directed, you know, the piece that I wrote, it, it's different, you know, and, and a lot of my, my style is more verbose. It's like a you know, um, just more like, you know, the Larry, Larry Barry Levinson, sorry, mm-hmm. diner type and everything, and Woody Allen, and more, you know, playwright. So I'm I'm happy to do it. And I thought that was, that was some of the greatest stuff to me is, you know, silence on screen, mm-hmm. you know, when you just see the actors connect. And I thought Julie did a phenomenal job with the actors and with, you know, Alexis and Kyle, their first time working together. I thought there was just something mm-hmm. really unique about their chemistry that truly works. She rehearsed, I think, over a month or two with them. Wow. And she does extensive rehearsals, and her and Aaron, they're just so thorough. So, I, you know what? I was just to have people that invested in a short, you mm-hmm. know, we're, we're all actually putting in our own money, and nobody's getting paid. It, it, was, it was really, really great. I mean, I was lucky. So now where is this film going to go now? Um, as I said at the top at the top of the show, yes, you got accepted into Beverly Hills Film Festival. You were supposed to have your screening on April first, but you got hit yeah. with the cruelest April Fool's joke of all. Um, <laughs> and the festival has been—is it canceled, canceled, or postponed? It's, it's postponed, and and we just actually played at the Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival, mm-hmm. which we won the best dramatic short, and um. So we premiered there because we finished it last year, but we just, um, you know, qualified for festivals starting in January. So we premiered February 15th, you know, at the Regal, at the Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival. We won that. And then we were just accepted to Beverly Hills that they postponed. And then, you know, we'll see how the rest of the year festival circuit plays out. We've entered a bunch and we'll see. So I'm guessing that everybody, even in responding to you, is kind of going to be on hold right now for where you well, for the submissions. Yeah, I think they've canceled a lot, and they're canceling and or postponing. And I think the postponements are going to be, to be honest, like to see if they can pull them together down the line. Mm-hmm. We'll see how many they reschedule. Well, I know with some of the but, big things that are happening out there that that are getting canceled, I'm seeing things. 
you know, oh, going to move it to October, going to move it to October, going to move it to October. And I'm just looking at October and I'm going, we're running out of days in October. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's really unfortunate, especially for filmmakers that have, you know, features that they're trying to get sold and, you know, make their investors their money back. It's it's such a bummer. It it is. So now, what is what? Where are you at in the process with your Harmony in Gold project? Since you shot them oh, back to back, yeah, I'm so I'm I'm swimming in in the, in the edit and just we're trying to lock picture. It's it's a it's quite a process. It's it's a it's a longer film. Um, uh, so I'm just I'm somewhere in the process of editing it and um we'll see what happens it's you know you know this part of the process is so it's all you know th- this part of the process is almost like being in purgatory like it's, it's <laughs> almost it's almost like like i'm in nowhere i'm like living in nowhere to go while editing harmony and gold because it's just <laughs> it's just looking at the same thing over and over and over and over again and then Sometimes it makes sense, and those are just such beautiful moments. So, um, I yeah, I'm editing it right now. I think we're we're aiming to have it all finished at some point by the summer, and then yeah, we'll we'll see what we want to do from there. Now, because you've already submit, you you've got nowhere to go out there on the submission list. Would you would you know, given the circumstances right now, if festivals, you know if it's still theaters are closed, things like that, would you consider just putting the short out online for people to see? Yeah. Well, I, we, yeah, yeah, I mean, eventually we, you know, we'll see like how the festival circuit plays out this year, you know, cause we just kind of started and we figure, you know, go till around September or so, you know, I don't see this as like a two year festival circuit film. No. And then um, I have, you know, the one one night in Hollywood and a couple other shorts are with uh, Shorts TV, a nice distributor AMC owns, and there's a few other distribute you know distributors that maybe we'll talk to, and eventually for sure it's you know with Shorts you just want as many people to see them as possible, right. you know. So I think we'll Aaron, Julie, and I'll talk and decide. I think around like end of September we'll see like mm-hmm. what we you know which avenues and submit it to some places and. Um, you know, see see what we can do, and if not, I don't, I never mind blasting a, a short online. You know, mm-hmm. as many people as can see the work as possible. I think is always the idea of shorts. Yeah, I know. Like for everybody involved, for everybody that worked on it. Well, yeah, because everybody's work gets showcased that way. Exactly. You know, and here, I mean, this you know, Eric's sound design, his editing, his mixing is so good. Um. Uh, you know, and Aaron's uh, cinematography, you know, it, it, all the elements here are so gorgeous that, yes, people... Well, and it's really a big screen movie. I know I'm sure every filmmaker says that, it's, <laughs> but, like, because the space, the, the space is such a character in it, mm-hmm. like the, their environment. Yeah. So it's, it plays so differently on a big screen. It's just it really puts you there with them. And um, so I think that's also a reason to try to hold out and, and screen it as, at as many festivals as possible, because that's really the, the best way to experience it. Well, I know that when I get to put today's show up on BehindTheLensOnline.net, I'm going to have your trailer there with it so people can at least see your trailer. So whenever you, cool. whenever you do hear about other festivals, let me know so I can throw it up on the site. Um, and let people know that the short hasn't disappeared. It's still there. <laughs> oh, Thank yeah. you, Deb. That would be great. Yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch. And we'll always come back if we get a notice. We'll, oh, yeah. It was great PR for us. I think um, I think we'll do pretty well. And we've got a couple in New York that Julie has good relationships with. And hopefully we get a screening out there. And, yeah, it is beautiful on screen, like like uh, Julie said. So yeah. um, we're, we're hoping. No, it it truly is. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you. 
was awesome. You will have yep, to come thanks. back. I know you will. Sherry, I know you will. Anytime. You're easy. Oh, and I can yeah. always talk to you in my bedroom. Social distancing. We're all practicing social distancing here. <laughs> I always said, I said as a writer, it's like you spend your life social distancing. So, I mean, I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the world, all the social people, I mean, I feel bad for. But, but yeah, that's just it. Everybody always says, because I stay locked in the house so much. I'm like, not going to be too different for me. Uh, <laughs> I always say, give me my, my, my bed, my dogs, my computer, my TV, and a bucket of chicken. I'm okay. I mean, I don't know. Well, now you just have to. And hey, you know, Grubhub just sent out emails that they're waiving their fee to the actual restaurants that they normally charge them. The delivery oh, no. service fee. They're waiving that during the, the national crisis. So... Now you can go and you order your bucket of chicken and have it delivered, and it won't deduct from what the restaurant gets. Just I think saying. everybody just keep your chin up. This will all be over in a couple of weeks, and I think it's all going to be positive, and I think it's good that they're taking precautions for people that, you know, are older and have other conditions, and I, I would just say stay positive. I think it'll all blow over, and it's, you know, it's just a, we've been through worse I, as a human I, race, so. I see a short film. That's my words on it. <laughs> I see a short film here. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be plenty of co- coronavirus sci-fis coming out in the next few months. Well, maybe some upbeat ones would be nice. So, <laughs> yeah. guys, thank you. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you both again soon. All right. Definitely anytime. Bye. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Sherry. Bye-bye. Thank you, Deb. Bye. Bye. And that was Sherry Sussman and Julie Pacino talking about their short Nowhere to Go, which hopefully we'll be seeing on the festival circuit later on this summer. I was going to, depending on how long we were chatting, uh, I was going to treat you to my exclusive interview with Ronan Jora and Carrie Van Driest uh, talking about their short film, Scratch. But... No time for that today. We will definitely, you'll definitely hear that next week. Uh, But if you want a real treat, here's a short film that you can go see right, that you can watch online right now. Totally free. Ronan just wanted it out there. It is a visual stunner. It's another one that has incredible sound design, but it's called Scratch. Scratch is the devil. Uh, and you can find it at www.mania, M-A-N-I-A, dot studio. It is, it, it's, it's visually mesmerizing. It is one of the most beautiful, beautiful shorts I have ever seen. Uh, and Ronan and Carrie and I did an interview uh, a little over a week ago. Uh, so unfortunately, we don't have time for that today, but You're going to hear it next week. Next week, director Aaron Fisher is also joining us live to talk about his new film, Inside the Rain. Uh, It was one of those films that should have been at South By. Unfortunately, South By Southwest was canceled. Uh, But all you South By film, you know, filmmakers that were all set to have your film showing last week, this week. You know, I'm covering a lot of them. I think I have nine of them already lined up uh, with screeners and then the publicists are setting up interviews. So I'll be talking to a lot of you guys. Um, so in the meantime, that is all the time we have today. Um, stay safe, socially responsible, social distancing. Take advantage of those streaming services that are out there. Support the mom and pop restaurants in your areas Use delivery services. Go out for takeout curbside service. I know that's what I'll be doing to support my local favorite establishment. Um, So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 